Hair's getting out of control, man. Wild wow. Yeti hair. Man, you're a powerlifter slash ultra endurance athlete. Slash out, crazy Wild scientist. <sighs> Living the dream. Let's have a look here. I need to pin it to the top of the group tonight, guys. Week got two. My, uh, <laughs> got, my, got, my, got my food delivery coming this evening and I've told them not to come till after nine o'clock. I guarantee you they turn up early this evening. Mate, they, they interrupt, interrupt us. You send them out, yeah? Kick them yeah. right out. Yeah. You slap them. Okay, that's pinned to the group. Hello, everybody. How are we doing? Leave a comment if you can see us. And you can hear us, obviously. Jess Closer says, Oi, oi, Paul, you are sexy. <laughs> I, I am. I you am. Are. You are. I am. Being the yeah, inside, though. What's that being the inside about? Even in Philippa. Jamie, hey, hey. Got some interesting uh, introductions here tonight. Katie Jackson with the wave hand. Sasha, with hello. Mm. Hi, guys. How are we doing? Remember, if you've got questions and it pops into your head, Shamai Lucy. Gabrielle, hey, hey. Uh, if you've got questions and they pop into your head, make sure to get it out of your head straight away because you might forget them. So just get them in the chat box. I'm going to be running the chat box, relaying it to Dr. Paul, you know, making sure he answers the questions for you. Um, you know, the thing with Dr. P is, because he knows so much information and he's a proper scientist, there's nuance to everything. And with us, we've got limited time. So we need a balance between the big answer that we need to give, but then being able to make it manageable to, you know, and this is what Paul hates me for, because I'm like, Paul, answer this in in less than 30 seconds. Well, I think I think philosophically, though, you've, you've touched upon a really interesting point there. So anyone watching this is, a lot of people struggle, uh, I put a post on the group the other day, um, a lot of people struggle with weight loss as it is, and we know that people, if people feel overwhelmed, they're less likely to continue with things. We like to feel like we have an element of control and to feel comfortable in learning new things and stuff as well. There's already a lot of resources and stuff on the group. And therefore, it might seem that quite often when we're giving simplistic answers to, to questions that are being asked, that therefore that is at the sacrifice of other things. And it's not. What we're trying to do in two weeks is just think of it like a game of chess, is just move some of those pieces into the right place to build on, Okay. We're not trying to, you know, get checkmate in one move, right? Or teach you how to play all of chess in five minutes. So I think that sometimes maybe that what we actually believe in and, and preach and practice over the long term in terms of our memberships and stuff kind of gets lost in translation in terms of, you know, just focus on your macro, just focus on this. And then people go, you know, like, well, what about health? What about this? And what about that? The two, one, two things. One, they're not mutually exclusive you can flexible diet and still eat healthily the second thing is i don't think at any point of me and scott ever said or anyone involved with us has ever said don't eat fruits and vegetables to hit your macros right and we'll also preach that eating more fruits and vegetables and more whole foods will make it easier to hit your macros and stay fuller because they're more voluminous they create more satiety feelings of fullness as well flexible dieting and if you follow the flexible dieters online, what you'll see is some people in the fitness industry who will use that as a vindication to eat pizza every single day, and that's all they'll eat. And, you know, used to have these things like back in the day called flex bowls, which would be like people just eating 600, 700 calories of highly processed, but not processed in the sense of, um, you know, foods that are fortified or processed in the sense that foods 
that are like still healthy but processed things like yogurts and dairy like you know like they'll have like bowls of like chocolate and ice cream and stuff like that and starve themselves all day to eat loads of those kind of foods that's not what we're saying we t- we preach balance and sustainability and everyone's going to have their own version of that and that's why it's confusion confusion yeah, yeah. confusing i think i think what people do as well is like in the with fat loss is obviously you need a calorie deficit there's boundaries of science but in that boundary and freedom what people tend to do is they tend to attach their identity to a certain way of eating mm. and they turn this into like a a thing they attach themselves to so you've got the keto people carnivore and stuff and flexible dieting or just eating what you want within your macros doesn't have to become a thing that like keto is it just means that you have got freedom so don't mm. turn it into this kind of uh skewed thing that you like will make your person your personality does that make sense loose hold loose it hold it loosely don't uh yeah you know the baggy well, polls are referring to i remember boys back in the day on um when macros was a thing with bodybuilders and stuff and they would like purposely show off that they were eating all these donuts and stuff thinking they were cool and then the younger people were watching it and i could see it happening in the forums the younger boys were watching it and then that became their personality traits like i'm eating donuts every day and not actually doing it because they wanted to, but doing it because they saw the other guys doing it. And then it became a thing they just automatically did um, as opposed to seeing what the, the, the science is. Hmm. I think I think the, the important thing within all that, though, is this idea of, um, of ex- being able to exercise, like control, not restriction. It's having control over nutrition to say, okay, I like a bit of this and I can have a bit of that, but it's also understanding how that fits in in the bigger picture, you know? So whenever we talk about, you know, if people have struggled to hit protein and things, that's fine. We'll make specific protein recommendations to help with that. That doesn't mean that we can't focus on um, also, you know, eating less processed foods. But like you've rightly said, Scott, unfortunately in the modern society, if you have any diet that's restrictive, even a healthy restrictive diet, because this is a misconception that people make, People will see something like a, a plant-based diet, vegetarian or vegan diet. My athletes that have the biggest issues with ins- nutrient insufficiencies have what might on paper be the healthiest diets. Because if you restrict any food, the chances are you're going to have a chance of nutrition insufficiency. Not necessarily deficiency, but you know insufficiency. So for example, uh, vegans are quite, um, quite prone to having uh, low iron because they don't eat red meat. And that's fine. And it's not to say that vegans should then start eating red meat, but an awareness of that then allows them to look for maybe foods that are fortified, like cereals that are fortified with iron, for example, for that reason. Iron is something that is massively under-consumed in our diet as it is, and it's you know really important for health, preventing anemia and stuff. So if you actually look at most breakfast cereals, which are processed, quite a lot of them are fortified with iron for that reason. Yeah. A lot of plant-based milks, oats, soy milk and stuff will quite often be fortified with um with extra calcium and with other nutrients to make them more healthful because most people's diets are lacking in those nutrients as well so health is a very health is a term that we use that i think a lot of people think they understand but if we actually stripped it back even healthful diets can be unhealthy but on the other side of the spectrum what we're not saying here is that you know we neglect trying to eat our five a day and i think interestingly in japan it's marketed as like seven a day in other countries are what it is and all they basically did to come up with those recommendations they said look if people eat this amount of fruits and vegetables the chances are they're going to meet their recommended daily allowances of these these fruits and vegetables uh, sorry the vitamins and minerals that doesn't mean to say 
that if you had seven, you definitely would, or five, you definitely would. It's just general recommendations. Somebody, um, have you got any questions coming in, Scott, before I monologue on this? Or- yeah, but I just, I think cover that one off. What is, what is RDA? Why is it at a certain level it is now? And what okay. does it mean? What does okay. the label mean when it says 50%, all this stuff? Okay, so... RDA is massively, massively, it's a, it's a challenging measure to take and it's measured in different ways. So I'm going to talk about the most common way RDA is measured, okay? So basically what they did is, and again, we know how inaccurate these things are. I'm not going to get too deep into the science of this. They did it in a few different ways. They, they could do it in population studies where basically what they do, and this is the most common way, they look at a group of healthy people. So they test their health markers and they go, right, Scott, you're a healthy person. You're coming onto this study. What I'm going to do is just assess your food diary. Okay, you're going to log all the foods that you eat and the amounts, and then from that, I'm going to then make predictions of each nutrient that keeps you healthy. Right? Literally, what they did. So they look at a whole population. They look at all the amounts and the variation of those amounts. So this is this is what we've got here. Okay. So let me move this around. So we have this is this is the number of people across here, and this is the amount they eat. So let's say. Um, this is hundreds of thousands of people across the bottom here, right? Yeah. And this is the amount of each fruit and vegetable they have. And this is called a Gaussian distribution, normal distribution for those who science. And then what they do is they say, okay, well, this person here, um, sorry, this is the average amount that people ate across there. Okay. Is that the wrong way around? You've got the graph the wrong way around. Yeah, yeah no, 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 it's fine. It's good. Yeah. So basically, no, actually, it should be the way around. Sorry, I did this in like two seconds before jumping on because there's another live. It should be the way around. So that should be the amount that people have eaten, okay? Yeah. And that's the number of people there. Okay, yeah, yeah. Sorry, guys. I do know my science, I promise you. That's why I just caught myself. So that's the amount. So amount of people on the bottom and then... No, the, the amount, amount of people food. on the left. The amount of food eaten. Yeah. So that's the amount of um, a specific nutrient eaten, and that's the number of people that have done it, right? So they know that if this distribution is like this, around 50%, have consumed this amount of a specific nutrient, okay? So that means that if you consume this amount here, you're still going to be help. You're still going to be healthy, potentially, because these are a healthy population. But what they do to make a recommendation, sorry guys, I'm trying to hold this up whilst doing it. What they do to make a recommendation is they take this mean value and then they add what's called two standard deviations to it. So a standard deviation is just a measure of variance. So it basically factors in how far this curve moves in this direction, and this direction here, okay? Mm. Now, obviously, if we're eating more than this amount here, this, this doesn't matter, right? Because if we're eating anything above that, uh, sorry, anything above 50%, we're taking care of all of these people that sit on this side of the curve, okay? So what they do is to say, okay, well, if we want to cover the needs of it's actually 97.5% of the population, they move these two standard deviations. So that's one standard deviation and that standard deviation there. So your RDA is designed to cover the needs of health of 97.5% of the population, right? Mm. So your RDA, 100% of your RDA is here, right? Now, if you have 50% of your RDA, that is still meeting the needs of over half of the population. So if you oh, have right, 50, okay. so if you have 50, if you have 50% of your RDA, doesn't mean that you're 50% less healthy. That could be if you were here on the curve twice as much as you need to be healthy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, this is what you call a perfect distribution, a normal distribution. Sometimes these are actually quite skewed. So you might find the distribution is like this and then tapers off there. So you might find that 97%, even 50% of your RDA there could still cut, sorry, 
even 50% of that RDA would still cover like 87, 88%. Of the hey, that graph looks really nice now. Sorry, guys. So <laughs> this is the problem. I wasn't I didn't have a chance to get to my clinic this evening because I had a train to catch. Really but the point I'm trying to make is... Let, let people are saying they get it. They get it yeah. in the chat. So basically, if you have 50% of your RDA, you might be one of those lucky people that are in that 50%. Uh, but if you get 200%, you pretty much guarantee that you've got... Yeah, yeah. so yeah. there would only be potentially outliers that fall at the far end of the distribution. Now, here's a problem, right? And it's not, not a negative problem. There's other studies they do as well. So they've done deprivation studies. So, for example, vitamin C is one where they did a deprivation study where they took a load of people, deprived them of vitamin C, and then they looked for signs and symptoms of things, right? Bit brutal science. And then what would happen then is they would say, for example, I think to prevent scurvy, for vitamin C, this is testing my brain here, so don't quote me on this one, to prevent scurvy, which is kind of why, um, for example, Americans call us limeys because we used to have limes because of the vitamin C to stop us getting scurvy at sea. Um, I think it's like 10 milligrams a day, but for wound healing, you need about 20 milligrams of vitamin C a day, right? So again, it's not just on one on one basis. The other thing as well is that we need to be careful of is that certain nutrients are stored in the body, so we don't need to have them every single day, Right. So fat-soluble vitamins tend to be stored in the body, water-soluble vitamins, not so much. But then also on top of that, when you start to then look at the science, the problem is that, and again, it could skew things either way, that if you're asking people to fill in food logs and food frequency questionnaires to see how much they're consuming, we know they're inaccurate anyway, so they always overestimate the RDAs to aim at, but that doesn't Mm. mean... That, um, that doesn't mean, and that's why if you look at B vitamins, for example, on the back of, if you look at like an energy drink and it's got like added B vitamins, it'll say it's like 2000% of your RDA because it's in everything, but it doesn't mean it's going to be, it's going to be, um, it's going to be dangerous in some way. Now there's other measures in there as well. There's called like a tolerable upper limit and a safe upper limit and all of that stuff. Again, I'm not going to go into that because it would be madness for people to try and eat that much. But a classic one would be like uh, vitamin A is one. If people have a lot of liver and stuff, because the liver is really rich in vitamin A. People can actually have, I've forgotten the name of the condition now, but you can have too much vitamin A and it can cause you to go blind. But that would mean like, you know, if you have, you know, it's like these carnivores eating raw liver meat and stuff. Again, like any extreme, if you push any food to an extreme can be unhealthy. So to say like, oh, I'm worried about eating under my RDA, chances are it's not going to happen if you have a fairly balanced and varied diet. The only caveats to that I would say, the three that I see most commonly are certain B vitamins and vegans. Um, zinc and a little bit of magnesium in most of the population because they don't eat enough protein and it's quite rich in protein sources and uh, vitamin e as well because people don't eat tend to eat enough healthy fats in terms of other nutrients omega-3s would be another one i think someone pointed that out on the group which is from oily fish so you know the recommendations would be two to three servings of oily fish per week if you don't do that you might want to look at getting an omega-3 supplement and i use them because i don't eat oily fish so again we're not saying here we're completely devoid of health but like you can just see there, if we'd started talking about that stuff from day one, as well as hitting your macros and freaking people out about eating their five a day, people just feel overwhelmed. And that's what we're trying to not do, you know? Yeah. So Makes just be sense. aware, guys, just be aware, guys, that a lot of the recommendations that are out there, they're overcooking them. And that's not a bad thing. It's good to aim at those things, but also don't, don't stress out about it. Let's get them. Let's get the calories in check first. Let's focus on as much whole foods as we can in the diet with a little bit of stuff you enjoy hit your macros, choose good food sources. And then if you're worried about the other stuff, um, if you go to my social media on my Instagram, I've actually done a vitamin and nutrition wheel where you can see like all the main vitamins and minerals and like lots of the food sources they're in and it's all color coded. So my, my uh, Instagram is at 
Dr. P performance, Dr. Underscore P underscore performance. Big boy, I've, Paul, one, two, three. Yeah, follow me, self-plug. But on that, I've done like literally a vitamin and mineral wheel. And you'll see that like so many foods have got like multiple of the vitamins and minerals in. And it tells you about all the functions in the body there as well. So trust me when I say that we, we do care about this and it's something we consider, but it's something that in the grand scheme of things, initially isn't the most important thing. And if people focused on diet quality and overall, like what we might deem a healthy diet with enough adequate protein, then the ones that most people do need to consider are if they're not eating any oily fish and obviously then red meat. And if, again, if you don't eat much red meat, my recommendation to athletes, if they've got no moral obligation or ethical obligation is to have two to three servings of red meat a week. If you don't, you probably want to look at having some foods that are fortified with iron. So again, hopefully that just, takes care Absolutely. of the fact that we're not interested in vitamins and minerals because we are, but it's just one box at a time. Okay, guys. Happy days. Happy days. Okay. Questions coming in. Some of them here. Guys, keep put the questions in the box. I'm going to go through them. Um, Gabrielle, we talk about workout stuff at the end. So I want to talk about this intolerance test, which two people have asked now. What's your opinion on intolerance tests? Like the York test. Are they a waste of money? Yes. <laughs> Why are they a waste of money? Um, so... Hang on, you're going to test my biology a bit now. Basically, a, a proper allergy, you've got two different types of like, um, you've got different markers for allergies, basically. You've got like an IgE and an IgA. And I've forgotten which way around they are now. This, this question's come about out of nowhere. But I can put some, I can put some links to articles that's on the group if you want. Yeah. Basically, the intolerance testings that you see there, there's ones that are legitimate that test for a specific antibody which will tell you if there's a genuine allergy or intolerance there. Most of the ones that you get that test for intolerances, what they do is it's a marker that is basically what it tells you is what you've already eaten, not that you're allergic to the thing yeah. that you've eaten. So basically what it does is if you've eaten a load of different varieties of food, it will come back and say you're allergic to all the things you've just eaten. The, the, the marker isn't accurate at predicting whether your immune response is significantly high enough to cause a problem. Okay. So your body will have a slight, immune response anytime there is a a protein in the body it's what it does it's what like an allergy is it's an over response of the immune system to something it detects as being potentially harmful a virus or a bacteria right um typically speaking that's what causes that immune response so ig is one of those markers in the body that goes oh we've got a protein type thing okay we've got a specific compound or, or um chemical we're not sure about those get elevated in response to different foods but it doesn't mean it's harmful in any way shape or form whereas the uh -huh. other one is that ig or iga I've got. I don't I think, want to say say which one because they're the wrong way around. Yeah. So it's been a lot. I think. Of I think that. I think there's a there's a doctor or gut or someone's done a test on this where she went and got one. She knew it was nonsense. She got it done and said that she was intolerant to all the food she was eating. So she's cut all those foods out and ate a completely different set of foods. Went back yeah. again and it says she was intolerant to those foods. And she just went. This is just obviously it's going to make people think it's an amazing test because it's telling them the foods they eat is a problem. And instead of thinking it's the calories and macros, they go, ah, let's demonize the food for now. It's so, well, ah. And also as well, let's say someone does have a genuine intolerance or an allergy. Well, obviously it's going to limit all of those foods. So it might make the condition better, but the problem is you're eliminating a load of other foods rather than the one that's specifically the issue. So mm. if you are going to get tested for any genuine intolerance, go and see a registered GP, We'll refer you to a dietitian. You'll get the right testing. There's IgA, Ig, and IgG. I can't remember which one the right one is, but yeah, there's lots of these like stuff you can get online and stuff. Like if you've genuinely got an intolerance, um, then or worry, go and speak to your doctor and get the right information. 
The second thing as well is, again, like Scott was saying there, and this isn't just common about intolerance testing, it's carbs, whatever, blame this, blame that, blame the other. What we don't, what we preach at the heart of everything we do is about educating ourselves, taking some personal responsibility, understanding our behaviours and trying to work on those behaviours. You know, I know a lot of Scott's, um, you know, the the total radio stuff that Scott does talks a lot about that and taking personal control. And one of the things that is appealing to a lot of people about those other nutrition approaches or those intolerance tests or whatever it might be, is that basically it allows us to get, I guess, let ourselves off the hook a little bit, right? Oh, it wasn't me. It was this. It wasn't that. And again, well, it's not about, it's not about it's judging ourselves. Technology. Look, yeah. it, it, you see yeah. it on the grand scale. Look at, like, if you look at it, and then we're not talking politics and I would say Trump, everyone, they demonize a group of people they blame something that's not that person's fault and they all go against what Trump is the Mexican war, all this stuff. You know, you blame a group of people, it rallies people, and they think it's not their fault, it's that their fault. And this happens from the top level, which is culturally the people, all the way down to food, all the way down to individual groups. Always this versus that. And if you can get you versus that, they've got you under control. And they've got you in their grasp. And that's what these diets do and these things do. They keep you under their grasp. And I think I think it's quite scary on some senses. So I understand the appeal of it because it's nice to feel like it's not us and like, you know, we've got things to work on. So one perception is like, oh God, this is all my fault, okay? And again, this isn't about blame. It's about understanding that we've grown up in a culture around food where maybe we do stress eat and maybe we've had a bad relationship with food and maybe food is control or lack of control or a reward or a punishment and you know that emotional thing around food so we're not saying all of a sudden that we should just let go of all of that stuff which is the deeper psychology which is challenging but if we can be aware of it then we can start to create systems and structures and you know work on ourselves to have a a more realistic understanding of what food is you know carbs fats protein nutrients as well as the behaviors around food and then through exercising that control, notice I use the word control, not restriction there, through exercising control around food, we then become more empowered to make better decisions. And once we have that, then we can then start to say, okay, well, actually, you know what? It isn't the fact that like I'm intolerant to sugar or whatever it is. It's the fact that of a weekend I overeat. And I'm cool with that because now I know and I'm aware of it. Now I can start to put some systems and structures in place to change those things. And know it's not easy because we all want to party with our friends and we all like pizza and we all like tasty, delicious food. But if we can understand it, then we can start to say, okay, well, how much control do I need to exercise? How much freedom can I have? And that's where we get towards this idea of true and meaningful balance and sustainability rather than just saying, oh, I eat sustainably and then not making progress or saying, oh, I can't eat this way. You know, so, you know, one of the things that we don't preach here is, is the vilification of anything apart from the BS that's out there, you know, like. Bang on, bang on. Yeah. No, it's bang on. Um, a few questions here. Um, okay. So Lucy Jane's asking, if I'm usually super active and my macros are set, take that into consideration, which they are, right? What is the best thing to do if I have a week where I don't move as much as usual, like if I get ill or something? Um, well, there's, there's, again, how long is a piece of string? No, I'm joking. So one is that we obviously factor in activity into the equation. So you might just say, if you're going to be a little bit less active that week, you could reduce your calories down a couple of hundred to compensate for that. But again, is that going to be too low a calorie for you to sustain? Because again, as we, even though we, our expenditure might be lower, if we reduce our overall food intake, that still might have influences on things like hunger control and stuff as well. Um, which is why, you know, I'm a big advocate of activity, not necessarily just exercise, but activity, because the more active we are, 
we can eat more calories for the same amount of relative calorie deficit, right? Yeah. So I'm a big fan of encouraging activity. But if we reduce our activity or our exercise, one is don't overestimate how much exercise you think is contributing to all this. Exercise for getting stronger, being fitter and healthier. But it's probably a couple of hundred calories a day, maybe tops, depending on the type of exercise you're doing. Half an hour spin class, few hundred calories. You know, a gym session, an hour in the gym, 200, 300 tops, depending on your body size. Maybe slightly more if you're doing like a longer aerobic session. But at the end of the day, you can adjust them downwards, but at what cost? You know, like if we're reducing food intake, we're reducing obviously calorie intake, then we reduce opportunities to eat food, food volume. So I would say if you're having an inactive week and it's one week out of every, say, month where you're just busy, just use that as a bit of a like a maintenance week or even a slightly less deficit week. It might not be maintenance. And just take that pressure off yourself. Because again, if we're not exercising, what we need to be cautious of is we're not punishing ourselves for not exercising by reducing our calories too low. Okay. Yeah. So if you do want to factor that in, just drop them a small amount. Don't overcompensate it. And what's really interesting is as well, for a lot of people who exercise, um, you get this kind of effect where people exercise and they think they're burning more calories. But then what will happen is the rest of their expenditure drops to compensate slightly. So they might think they're burning 300 calories. Let's say they think they're burning 300 calories a day extra from exercise, but they might reduce their other activity by 150 calories. So the net loss is only 150. Yeah. Whereas um, if, if somebody then doesn't train, you might find that you, you know, you fidget more, you walk more, you're a bit more active anyway. So you get this kind of compensation effect. So people always assume that oh, I'm burning 300 calories more from exercise. Therefore that's going to be called 300 calories more weight loss. Not necessarily because you might be just less active the rest of the time in ways that you're not even conscious around as well. So what I would say is like, if it's a week, don't worry about it. Follow the check-ins. That's what the data is there for. See what happens. It might be a nice little experiment for yourself rather than putting mm. the pressure to just drop the, drop the backside mm. out of your calories. No, great answer. Lucy, hope that was uh, satisfactory for you here. Let me know. And then, guys, in the intolerance stuff, let me know about that as well in the comments. We can pass on more afterwards. Um, okay, Lisa, me, um, I hit my macros last week but lost no weight. Is this normal? Can I still lose weight this week with the same macros? Or do I need to do something different? Weight loss, fat loss, different things. Paul, explain. So weight is the entirety of your being brain blood bone bowel water weight and all of that stuff your weight will fluctuate i mean significantly depending on your starting body mass um your weight can fluctuate i've seen people's weight fluctuate several pounds a month over the course of whether they're dehydrated whether they've been drinking whether they've had salty foods menstrual cycle hormones are going to be a massive significant one for women so if you imagine that your weight over the course of the menstrual cycle fluctuates say two to three pounds And over the point at which your weight has been creeping up because of water retention, which is influenced by menstrual cycle hormones, you might have lost a pound, but your weight's actually gone up a pound because there's a net two pound loss. And then people get disheartened. So it is entirely possible to gain weight and lose fat because weight isn't fat, right? I'm going to say that again. Weight isn't fat. Fat is a component of your weight, but it isn't the entirety of your weight, right? Mm. So if we were to break that down into the compartments of the body, water, we're 60% water, depending on how much fat mass we have, you know, typically 20-ish percent body fat mass for most women, 20 to 30%, unless obviously we're carrying excess body fat. And then the rest of it is kind of like what we call lean mass, which isn't just muscle. It's like, you know, brain, organ, all the other gooey stuff that's inside us, right? So if we think about those compartments, we think about of those compartments, which is the most variable, by the way, it's it's water weight that fluctuates the most. You know, yeah. like an hour's exercise in a in a relatively warm environment, you could lose two percent 
20% of your body weight in water and just exercise. Hence why you see people like wearing sweatsuits in the gym thinking they're losing fat because they're, they're sweating more, right? So that's because people are obsessed with that association between weight and fat. But it's entirely possible to be losing fat and still that be masked entirely by water weight, particularly when people, if they're maybe, you know, if they're not sleeping well or they're in a quite a stressed state, like our stress hormones influence our water regulation as well. So quite often it's quite common to see people's weight might hold for a period of time, whether it's actual stress or physical stress from exercise or dieting. And all of a sudden their weight will hold for three, four, maybe even five weeks. And I've yeah, seen it over the period of several it. months. Yeah, and all of a sudden it. in one month, their weight will just go boom and just drop like four or five pounds. So like we need to understand that the science is the science and the numbers we've set, the chances are in 99.9% .9 of cases that you will be in a calorie deficit. And if you're not, and the weight isn't coming down and you're not noticing changes in measurements, changes in pictures, forgetting just the weight as an aside, that's when we need to go back into our beliefs and our behaviors and say, right, am I actually 100% accurately tracking everything I'm eating? Am I being honest with my weekend behaviors? Am I putting in a full serving of that pizza that I had or did I put in a half serving because I have difficulty acknowledging to myself? You know, as um, we were discussing this the other day, Scott, about like the accuracy of things that are reported in, in restaurants and things and how inaccurate they can be. So if we're eating out multiple times a week, but we're tracking accurately, accurately maybe for a couple of weeks what we want to do is just not not eat out but maybe restrict that to maybe one or two occasions over a few week period rather than if we're eating out three or four times a week you're tracking and you're not losing weight that's the first thing i would kind of look at because as much as we can do that flexibly what we probably need to do is factor in some kind of other amount as well bit of a segue away there but i think that's one of the key things for me when people are i, I believe they're being as accurate as they can be they can only be as accurate as the environment that we're in, you know? Yeah. That doesn't mean that we've got to weigh, in every, weigh and measure everything to the gram, but it does mean that we should have at least some sense of confidence in what we're actually tracking. So don't worry about if weight hasn't come down in the first week. Don't worry if weight hasn't come down in the second week. Just keep hitting the macros, do it for a consistent period of time, right? And it will happen. And if it's not happening, then it will auto-adjust. And if it's not happening when it's auto-adjusted, that's when we need to take a step outside talked before about this idea of like just being honest with ourselves around what we're actually doing. You know, when we go out, was it two glasses of wine or was it three? Was it three slices of pizza or was it four? Was it, you know, two sausages and a fried egg or was it three sausages and a couple of strips of bacon and a couple of fried eggs? And I say this in jest, but I'm being serious because we all do it, you know? Yeah, no, of course, um, of course. And it's like important as well. Like, you know, if you end up joining us, guys, we have like a nutritionist on hand as well, who's a really talented, been around the globe, Europe, America, all sorts of places, um, helping nutritionists. You can email that our nutritionist, Adrian, as well. If you ever wanted us to look into and look into anything like specific, but the specificity, the chance of it being something really specific and like rare is slim for most people. There is an example I do have though of... Um, this girl, this girl we had on one to one coaching and I remember we were helping her and her weight wasn't dropping for ages, right? It was staying the same. And we were asking her to take photos of her food just for a few weeks. We went and all that. And I figured out that she was on depot, the uh, birth control depot, the injection. Yeah, yeah. And caused like extreme, kind of extreme water retention. Yeah. And she eventually like changed birth control and stuff with this. And, you know, she had big drops in weight. And it's like, in that case... You know, telling her to like eat less and all this stuff. We knew we wasn't the answer. We had to look into it, look into it, look into it. Back up. I'm saying this is not exactly like the the normal the normal case, but there is some instances, of course. But like Paul is saying, 
you know, are you honest with yourself? And I think you guys have done an awesome job because in the first few days, mm-hmm. someone posted and was really honest and then that, that triggered honesty all around. Yeah, and I saw that. That was great. I, I can't remember who posted it. I think I liked it. Um, but yeah, that's that's Brilliant. it's nice to see that because it's people can tend to feel a bit ashamed or a bit no shame in it. There's no shame in it. No, this. there's no shame. Like you don't know, right? You know, it, there's this. It's uh, what's it? It's an axiom. It's like you don't know what you don't know, and it's only when you know you know. But the thing is, we feel like we should know when we've got no real right to know because we're told we should know, and because we I think yeah. that made sense as a sentence. Yeah, like. We make, we make assumptions about stuff all the time that we hold to be true. And it's only when we have the evidence to, to counter those beliefs that we can have it. So that's what we talk about being your own scientist. What we're doing is we're collecting evidence through tracking and through honest tracking. And when we're not tracking, being honest about what we're not tracking accurately in order to inform our decisions. It's this, it's taking the emotion, like Scott's very, like, you know, beats that message drum all the time of like, just take the emotion out of it. Use this couple of weeks as not worrying about weight loss. Just use it as an experiment. To say, like, okay, well, how aware actually am I of all that stuff? And then once we have awareness, then we can affect change, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, Lisa, in that case, you could be, you could have lost fat, you could have lost a pound of fat in the week if you hit your macros and you just haven't lost total weight. Don't let it impact you negatively, change the the, the, the perception of it. Um, Megan Pearson saying, can the symptoms of IBS flare? Can the symptoms of IBS flare because of your cycle rather than food you're eating? Can the symptoms of IBS flare-ups happen because of your cycle rather than the food you're eating? I've done FODMAP and the York test and all these things, but what I'm feeling like I'm notice is a kind of cycle of symptoms, but I don't actually currently have a cycle I can track. Um, okay, so my general advice, there's a lot of potential moving parts here, okay? So when we're looking at what we call biomarkers, whether it's tech, tests, whether it's menstrual cycle stuff, whether it's blood tests or anything else you haven't done, is I would encourage you, if you want a genuine, sincere answer to this, obviously track your food intake to look for correlations between particularly foods and maybe flare-ups of IBS, okay? That's one. What I would also do is I would try and track menstrual cycle if you have a regular one, if you're not using birth control. That's two. The third thing, and the most important thing, and again, I am not in the business of woo, of like nonsense, but there is definitely a body of evidence that is being collected that particularly when it comes to inflammatory conditions, so obviously IBS, IBD falls into that category, um, anything which involves an autoimmune response, like I was saying before about the body, like the body's response to what it perceives as being a foreign invader, is going to be influenced by stress. So if you're one of the things that I've had the biggest impact, and again, this isn't my area of expertise, I'm not a therapist, never claim to be, But when I've had clients that have had gut issues around gut inflammation, one of the biggest tools that we've had for helping them in terms of reducing bloating, reducing episodes of inflammation and pain and discomfort is to be able to be aware and to manage stress better. So improve sleep, some gentle exercise that isn't stressing the body, and also being aware if you're stressed and tired and work, like having some community, having some help and having some support there to unload stress. Yeah. There is a thing called a gut-brain axis. It definitely exists. It's an interaction between our gut and the compounds our gut produces and our brain and our brain and our guts and our immune system. The problem is that there's a lot of charlatans who pray in that space and make up a load of nonsense about stuff about how all of your stress is to do with gut dysbiosis and this, that, and the other. Look, it's an interesting area of research which is gathering momentum, but we don't know enough say you know like take this probiotic or do that probiotic or do this or do that or it's you know candida or all of this stuff that people will prey on and try and sell you nonsense supplements or overly restricted diets again 
What I can say, though, is that there's a pretty clear pathway between stress and inflammation. So if you have any inflammatory condition, I'm sure people who've got eczema and other autoimmune issues where they have flare-ups or they get hives or anything like that, um, I would hazard a guess that those flare-ups get worse at times when we're highly stressed. Um, 100%. 100%. Yeah, so eczema, dermatitis, things like that. So I would say uh, contact dermatitis, things like that. So I would say keep a journal and a log. And again, this is a QA. and a um, There's a lot of moving parts. So I'm trying to speak very carefully about what I say here. But what I would do is potentially go and speak to your GP if it's a recurrent thing. And if you're not getting the answers there, then you might want to go and speak to a private dietitian and a nutritionist or a nutritionist. But please just be careful of the charlatans that are out there that will prey on saying, oh, like, if you just change this, you can solve this thing or whatever. You know, if they're not saying things along the line of what I'm saying, but maybe with a little bit more insight, then maybe just kind of walk away slowly if they start trying to sell you supplements and all that kind of stuff as well. Don't get me wrong. I've had clients and we've been desperate and I've tried prebiotics and probiotics with them. We've tried different types of fiber composition in the diet and all of that stuff. And I've had limited success in, in those variants. Most of the time, I would say that the flare-ups are being caused by either stress or just general poor nutrition practices and, and low exercise habits, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah. Sorry, I can't be more specific on that, but I think that, that's about as close as I can get. No, no, it's good. And I think uh, Hugh Gilmore, who does stuff with us, um, Paul as well, he talks about stress and he talks about something called like allostatic load, which is mm-hmm. we don't think of – we always think of just stress as like – bad stress but everything can stress us you know being in deficit is stressful doing workouts can be stressful your work life can be stressful and it all adds to the stress bucket so you might think that like doing more workouts will de-stress you but sometimes doing more things that do cause stress can actually overload you on stress so it is important to look at everything as a whole as opposed to saying well i'm only stressed in work but I'm not here but you could still be adding stress in other areas if you're overdoing it um again this is a topic we probably try and get Ideally, I want to get a guy called Robert Sapolsky and I'm working on him. I email him every month, um, but he's still yeah. writing the book. But we try and get some in and share that with you because this, this is probably a, just as important as the awareness stuff, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and we, we've, we've been through this journey ourselves, haven't we, Scott, where we were very much focused on like the nutrition, the macronutrients and all that stuff. And one of the things we realized in terms of our community was the quicker we can systemize the nutrition stuff to the, the calorie counting stuff, and that allows us more opportunity to build a community and to discuss strategies and approaches to handling the habits and the behaviors and stress rather than yeah. just, you know, talking about proteins and amino acids and carbs and stuff, because again, yeah, we can get in, I can get into that until the cows come home and don't get me wrong. I love that stuff as you can probably tell, hopefully, but ultimately my kind of tail between my legs moment was when I started having to sort of give way a little bit more towards the behavioral aspects of nutrition yeah. rather than just being like, well, why can't you just eat the calorie deficit? Come on, have some willpower. You know, that's like, the industry now. <laughs> the industry now is I see some personal trainers on social media, like the various ones, the influencer ones, and they're like, You should, they say stuff like, You shouldn't need me after three months or something. They said, You should lose weight and you shouldn't have to pay for a personal trainer again. And what we say is, We educate on the fat loss and stuff, but when you stay for the community, you stay for the de stress, you, st- you stay for more education, you stay for the reading, you stay for the outlets for stress, you stay for community, which is huge in helping us navigate life. You stay for motivation, peer-to-peer learning, um, being able to take risks, meeting people in person, you know, meeting someone who's in this business and that business, making a connection outside of just fat loss. Like there's so much more to this than the fat loss part. You don't just stay for fat loss. That's taken care of. And then we maintenance, 
and we maximize life, the bring the stress down and we go through it and people drop off and stay on for ages and years. And it's not because it's not working. It's because they're actually getting the life benefit way more than life benefit and just, you know, shrinking some fat cells, you know, at the end of the day, um, best important. Um, Katie Jackson says, so I've been really unwell this weekend. Stomach bug, won't go into details. <laughs> no worries. But I've lost two kg from Friday to Sunday. I'm guessing being dehydrated and the fact of literally not eating anything. Is there anything I should change this week or now just crack on as normal? I, I would say uh, I would say crack on as normal if your drivers to eat aren't really high. If you've not eaten much for a couple of days, it's probably natural that as you recover, your body's going to want a few extra calories. Don't deprive your body of those nutrients. If I've got someone who's ill, look, don't, don't try and use it as an excuse to just eat, overeat and go renegade is my most overused term. But if you feel hungry whilst your body's recovering, you know, good whole nutrient dense food, get it in there, try and get, you know, roughly in the ballpark of the targets that we've given. But if you are feeling like you're still genuinely hungry, like feed your body for recovery. Okay. Rather than just being worried about, you know, like what's gone on. And again, like you said, a little bit of dehydration, you might not have eaten. So wasting your bowel will have removed a little bit. Um, you might have like if you've not had many carbs and things you might have like depleted um, like glycogen stores so yeah expect a little bit of a weight rebound but don't freak out about it if you do eat a bit more food it won't be fat gain okay so yeah I would say like tr- if you can go back to targets but don't beat yourself up if you need a little bit extra food um, just because your body has been in a you know a calorie deprived straight state for a few days happy days happy days and just um something on the, on the mental cycle. I'll post a video. We did an interview with Lyle McDonald who covers this all in depth. So mm. I'll post that in the group guys and you can watch on your own time because it's a two hour thing as opposed to being able to answer in 10 minutes. Um, any tips for getting more fiber in your diet was also trying to eat more protein. Hannah. Um, well, I'm not sure. I would say, I would say that that's probably, I would just take, I'd take, I have to take a step back from that because fibrous foods don't tend to be high in protein, but also high in calories. So there's no reason why you couldn't treat those things independently. Yeah. So for example, if you're not eating much protein, have more protein with your meals, it might be either adding in a protein snack or increasing the protein portion sizes. So like if you have a small amount of, I don't know if vegetarian or not, but if you have a small amount of chicken or fish, have a slightly bigger portion size. The fiber would come more from making, ensure that when you look at a plate and this is actually probably a good point to focus on anyway like what color is your plate is it beige you know we want to make sure that there's a couple of different colors on our plate if you're having things like you know like some veggies some salad and stuff your fiber will probably take care of itself the only bit of beige that we want is kind of like whole grain beige so if you eat a lot of white breads you know maybe look at getting some whole grain options in there as well um just to get a bit more fiber in there if you do want it fiber i think you know we focus on protein a lot but i think that in a close second, if not vying for first on a tie, is the fiber content in the diet does slow blood sugar level, uh, does stabilize blood sugar levels, does make us feel full, does slow down digestion. So anyone who thinks their calories are too low, because this has been a question that's been asked, anyone watching this back who thinks their calories are too low and not feeling full, have a look at your plate and just be like, right, actually, how much like how much how many veggies are on there? What greens are on my plate? You know, what how much how much color is on my plate? You can have a hell of a lot of veggies for a very low calorie content and it will, will keep you feeling fuller. That's one of the dangers of just focusing on the calorie and the macros component is that you can miss those other pieces of the puzzle. But again, one brick at a time. So I would say they're kind of two independent variables there. Um, there's no reason why adding like, you know, some broccoli, spinach, green beans, anything that's green and roughage like, if you want to call it that, 
might not be an issue. However, one of the things that, again, if you do struggle would be one of my favorite things to get fiber in, if I've needed it, would be like, you know, having a protein yogurt and then adding in some bran flakes. But again, just be careful of the carbohydrate content and as well, if you wanted some, you know, other types of fiber. So yeah, I, I don't think they're necessarily, I'm trying to think of like a high protein, high fiber food. That, it, that wouldn't be something that oats. would fall in the category of like processed. Yeah, whey protein with some oats, probably. Yeah, like uh, you say, like it, it's more of a meal combination yeah. solution rather than yeah. a than a like a eat more of one food solution. There, sorry, I can't be more helpful. With that that's all right. I'm picking that's my brain. I'm, I'm going through it. I'm going through it, but I can't think of anything immediately. No, no, that's helpful. Good. I think uh, Tracy Lou, can you can you uh, before we go into this one, can you comment again? So. In maintenance and already consistent, why target a different macro mix? What do you mean? Are you being are you being told by the app to change your macro mix, or like can you give more context on that? Won't change in the mix mean likely lose a gain instead of maintain? Um, your total calories determine weight or weight gain or weight loss. Obviously, the protein is always consistent. We don't change or drop the protein usually, so your protein is important for maintenance of lean mass. Uh, carbs and fat will depend on your preferences. And this leads into this question. And Paul, I got a question for you that's a bit more complex. Um, um, Angela saying, I'm struggling to eat the right food to fit my macros. I'm under protein and carbs. But if I add more protein, I go over fat. Angela, go to the macro preferences tool. Lower your carb target. It will give you more allowance of fat as it seems your diet is more preferable for higher fat. So then you have higher fat allowance. You can increase your protein. Your carbs are under, so you know you'll probably be more online. Happy days, guys. You have to make sure to use the macro preferences tool because I don't know your diet preferences. We don't know. We don't need. I don't need to know it. You need. You just need to know that you can alter it yourself. Okay. I, can I, I just want. Can I just elaborate on that ever so slightly? Okay. Yeah. If if you're obviously we're tracking our food intake, right? Now, if you're noticing things like that, okay. If my protein goes higher my fat goes higher and that's taking me up above my fat targets. That would suggest to me, probably rightly, and I'll, I'll, I'll you know, bet a small, a small fortune on it, that that means that our protein sources are also high in fat sources. So the question would then be, okay, if that's something which is, let's say it's uh, cheese, higher in protein, can we do a lower fat cheese option necessarily if we want that in there? If it was, say, meat, right, is my meat, all fatty cuts of meat rather than leaner cuts of meat. Can we swap something in out there? Is it that if you're a vegetarian or vegan, that it's a lot of nuts and seeds to get your protein intake up? So therefore we probably need to reduce the protein sources of that and then look for other leaner protein sources to add into the nutrition. Because you've got a food log with specific foods, have a look beyond the, um, try and have a look beyond simply the, the outcomes at the end of the day, click through and look at the foods and just figure out where those extra fats and proteins are coming from. And then say, okay, right, okay, well, let's dig inside that and go to that next level now. If you're at that point where you've, you know, you've had a week or so of doing this, dig a little bit deeper and look at your specific food choices and see which ones, oh, actually, I could swap that for that or um, use that to understand the, the, the nutrient specifics of each food and each meal rather than just at the end of the day looking at things and like, yeah, we like a big helicopter view. We talk about that a lot, but there's an opportunity there Sorry, Scott, I'm getting like about 7 million WhatsApp messages. Let me just kill this. Um, right. The um, Yeah, look inside the individual foods and figure out which are your higher protein, higher fat foods and look for alternatives that are maybe lower fat, higher protein. Or like Scott said, 
if that's an inconvenience to you, just change those amounts downwards. Like fats and carbs are fairly interchangeable. It's just that, you know, fats are more calorie dense. So typically it means if we're doing that, we have to have a little reduction of food, but that also means then we probably need to look at adding in more, you know, um, veggies and salads and things like that, just to make sure that food volume stays nice and high and that fiber stays nice and high. No, bang on, bang on. Um, Okay, so I see the questions we can answer. Some of them are medical. Um, okay, sleep and fat loss. What was the impact, Paul? Um, so sleep within itself isn't going to necessarily directly cause you to lose or gain weight. You know, people say like, oh, cortisol increases, fat storage and all this kind of stuff. Um, I'm stupid. Um, cortisol itself actually doesn't increased fat storage, it liberates fatty acids from the body. It's not what it does. And the reason that sleep will affect you is because it will massively influence hunger and appetite regulation, and it's a physiological stressor. So when Scott was talking about allostatic load before, one of the biggest stresses we can have, that will have a big impact on fat loss in terms of if we lose weight, if we're likely, no, not likely, we're more likely to lose muscle as well as fat is that. And also, if we get out of, um, if we get out of our rhythm, um, sleep wise again that will affect all kinds of um things in our brain which will increase our drivers to to eat so the associations between like shift work for example and poor sleep isn't because miraculously our body just starts to just you know photosynthesize energy out of the air it needs to it needs to have that extra calories but what it does do is it increases drivers to eat and those snacking behaviors because if we're tired our brain becomes the when our brain becomes depleted, it craves sugars and, and fattier and more calorific foods. So we then tend to eat more um, and have less less control, really. Mm. Yeah, no, bang on. I think I, I need to look into more and I'll send it to you, Paul. There's a, there was one study, it was like five and a half hours of sleep versus seven and a half or eight and a half. It was like same calorie intake, all this stuff, same macros. And the yeah. group that slept more, lost more fat as a percentage of weight. But again, is that because they slept better and then they trained better and like you yeah know... there, there was a few there was a few things with that as well where there was a few things where like I think the overriding principle is true but I think there's only I don't think that study's ever been replicated in the way that it was I'm not going to get too much into it technically I actually talked about that in terms of um, I was doing a, a seminar on it and I touched upon it I think it's I think there's definitely some evidence and, and there's a, a thread of truth in it I just think it was a pretty poorly designed study if I'm being honest. Um, because again, like, like you say, I don't think that, I think the sleep contributed to the shift in the compartment in which we lost weight from, I think, like you said there, there was other factors at play, probably driving to eat. And I think there's probably an underreporting of calorie intake more than anything else. Um, and, and yeah, it, the numbers didn't add up to me is what I'm trying to say, but the point it's still the, the overriding correlation in terms of less sleep equals more fat gain is and less fat losses or depending on what we're trying to do because of the drivers to eat is there and mechanistically there's a, a um there's there's enough evidence there to see that it affects things like you know uh, like our hunger hormones and responses to food intake yeah. and you know blood glucose levels that that would have a negative effect effect sorry i can't talk this evening active thyroid i've had this in 16 i di didn't want to go on medication and it's always been low and I remember speaking to a doctor not actually long ago, being like, look, I'm always tired and I'm getting eight hours of sleep. I've been making sure. And she was like, why don't you try, why don't you try nine hours of sleep? And I was like, 
right? Interesting. Okay. <laughs> 29 hours. And I felt much better. She's like, you know, you can go off these um, estimations or whatever, but it doesn't mean that's going to be for everybody. So some of you might function better on seven versus eight. Some like he was talking about this the other day in our octagon challenge, like, you know, it takes 90 minutes to do a full sleep cycle, I believe. And some people need more sleep cycles. Some people can do better off less. So it's not so much about like the X perfect number, but do and sleep cycles, them? sleep cycles, again, they vary in length. Like it's not like everyone has a 90 minute sleep cycle as an, as an individual variation within the sleep cycles as well. That's why, again, we talk being your own scientist. If you really do get, I guess, obsessive about this stuff. Like for me, I know if I get over seven and a half hours night to sleep, I'm fine. If I get less than that, maybe it's a bit psychological. Now I'm a grumpy bugger the next day. But I also know that if I get over eight hours, I've got a window of about seven and a half to eight hours. If I go over that, I wake up in my deep sleep and then I always feel groggy for the first 20 minutes whilst I wake up. Yeah. doesn't mean that I need to go back to sleep. It yeah. just means that I'm in the middle of my deep sleep and therefore I feel groggier. You ever notice a lot of people, like they'll wake up and think like, oh, I can get an extra 20 minutes. They feel quite awake. They, uh, awake. they drop back off and then they feel crappier 20 minutes, 30 minutes later. That's pretty much because if you're in light sleep and you wake up, you're in the middle of that waking part of your sleep cycle. And then if you then go back into a sleep and you go to a deep sleep, you can actually feel worse. By the way, that's not an excuse for if you wake up at three or four o'clock in the morning, just getting four hours a night's sleep, by the way. But it is why sometimes you can wake up and feel quite refreshed, even though it's like you've had three or four hours sleep. It won't last the rest of the day, but in that moment, you kind of feel exactly. a little bit um, exactly. better. Um, I think, I think as Tracy, I think I know you're getting that now. So Tracy's asking about before she had the maintenance calories and with us, the, the protein is way higher than she's used to eating why what difference does that make on the, at the maintenance level is how you saying tracy is how you saying like why the ratio does that cause a different weight gain or and you're not in maintenance um i think that's your asking so if you want to comment again uh with that and then talk paul have a think about it and then we'll do one more before that so tracy if i've got that right let me know uh danielle's asking um what is the recommended process for going from fat loss to maintenance once you meet your goal? Is a reverse diet, that phrase, beneficial or should you just go straight to maintenance calories? Um, I think that I per, my personal preference is if someone can psychologically handle it is go to maintenance. The nature of the deficit that someone is in isn't severe enough that like it's going to make that much difference. And if you're monitoring your data and the app auto regulates things anyway or you auto-regulate yourself, you'll be fine. Because at the end of the day, if we've got good sustainable habits and let's say we increase our calories, then what we might do is maybe do, uh, if we increase our calories and then we monitor our condition, remember not just weight, but because we've got those fluctuations in, if our weight does start to creep up and we notice it, we can just reduce calories down a little bit. Now that might be scary to some people. So the, the approach that people feel most comfortable with would probably be to say somewhere between a reverse diet which by the way, a reverse diet is like you diet on a certain amount of calories and then you add in like 50 calories a week for 10 weeks until you find your new maintenance. And just we know basically, it's just, you, think about the tracking error. Like it's not, yeah. you can't add 50 calories a week accurately unless you're in the chamber. Yeah. And, and at yeah. the end of the day, at the end of the day, that even if you are doing that, you're basically, pro, if you're in a 500 calorie deficit and you added 50 calories a week for 10 weeks or whatever, you're basically prolonging your diet for 10 weeks. Because you're still in a deficit, it's just slightly less of a deficit, and all the stuff about your metabolism readjusting and stuff. No evidence to suggest that doesn't happen. But you know what they say, though they say to 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 do more steps. So obviously your maintenance 
slightly keeps going up because you're doing more steps over those weeks. So I, I, I think there's not many things I feel like I'm like super well versed to be like, look, I'm pretty like an authority on this stuff, but I've presented on this at length and I've written articles on this very subject. I would say reverse dieting, the advantages of reverse dieting is it gives people a bit of confidence to kind of increase their calories slowly up until maintenance. But then maintenance isn't really a thing. Let me caveat that with, let's say you increase your calories to 1800 from 1300 and your weight's maintaining. That doesn't mean if you don't increase your calories a bit more that you weren't going to maintain weight. Because if you increase your calories above that, you might just become more active. You might train harder. So maintenance is this kind of ethereal, hazy, foggy thing. It's like, is it a cow in the field or is it a horse? So it exists, but it's not quite as clear cut as like I maintain on this because we can increase our calorie. And if we've got a highly adaptive metabolism in the sense that we're going to burn more calories because we, you know, we train harder or we're just more active. Or for example, if we increase our calories, I'm a naturally kind of like fidgety person. Do I become more wiry if you want to call it that? So I think that it's a safe way of doing it. But what I would say is if the idea of going up to maintenance terrifies somebody split the difference. So if you're on 1300 and it says maintenance is 1800, go to like maybe like 1500, 1600, do that for a week or two see how you feel, then go to 1800. So you're not prolonging that diet out by like much longer than it needs to, but you get that psychological kind of comfort blanket of not being like, I'm back at maintenance, I'm going to gain weight, you know, because if you go back to maintenance straight away, you're going to be eating more carbohydrates, holding a bit more water. So weight will jump up as well. So also try and remember this guys, without getting too confusing, your lowest weight you reach dieting won't be your actual weight because one, it's going to fluctuate, we've discussed, but also, so the chances are over time that you may have some form of glycogen depletion going on to where carbohydrates store in the body. So as you eat more carbs, your body's going to hold a bit more carbs and a bit more water. So it's natural from someone's lowest diet in weight, when they go back to maintenance, their weight might go up a pound or two. Doesn't mean there's been any fat gain. Doesn't mean you're going to look any worse. It just means that we are in a, it's like having a, a, a petrol tank on a car that's half full. So then if we have more petrol to the car, the car's going to weigh heavier, but we've not added any mass to the car in terms of like, you know, there's no more wheels on it, right? The engine isn't bigger. There's no more, like the wing mirrors didn't get any bigger as well. So, you know, again, that's that's something that screws with people's heads. And I've had clients I've worked with for 12 months who still can't kind of grasp that concept because it's so foreign to what they're, they're preaching. But this is why we say, look, weight isn't fat. We're going to lose weight. We want to lose weight to a healthy, sustainable look, not a number on the scale. Ultimately, if you ever looked at someone who's in great shape, do you ever think, oh, I wonder what they weigh? I don't think I've ever thought that. I thought that person's in phenomenal shape. Good for them. I've never thought, I wonder what they weigh. So try and treat yourself that sense in terms of like, you know, get where you want to go physically, but also try not to obsess about like what weight it is when you got there. Cause that will still fluctuate over time. We've had this a lot with like our longer term members, um, our longer term members where like their weight will stay fairly stable, but they'll be gaining muscle and looking great and their shape will change. You know, I've had clients work with me over like two, three years where they gained weight, but they look you know, so much more aesthetic in the sort of classical sense of being leaner, more muscularity in that sense, if that's something you want to aspire to. So at that point, that's where we need to just be very careful with maintenance because maintenance might mean if we want to change our physique, we need to increase our mass. But it might mean that we don't need to gain fat to increase our mass. And that's another head screw as well. <laughs> People trying to eat more food. No bang on. Um, so Tracy, protein in the app is nearly double what I naturally had before. Calories about the same. So what is it about this macro mix that maintenance is going to make a difference to her? So say now she had maintenance with low protein, maintenance with the protein we're giving, which is more in line with what the evidence suggests for the, the average person. What well, is the difference then? 
Well, the, the protein will help you maintain because it's going to help with hunger regulation and control. So don't forget, it's not just about weight management. It's why we regain weight. Like there's the old adage is weight loss is easy, weight maintenance is hard. Because again, the protein is going to keep us feeling fuller, particularly if we're less active, more sedentary. You know, and that means you might take up exercise, but it still means that you know, we need to be aware that the environment we live in is going to be quite difficult to regulate food intake sometimes. So protein will help with that feeling of fullness. However, if we've also picked up good exercise habits, well, guess what? It's going to help with the recovery from exercise as well. Because if we go back to eating lower protein, we're going to have more hunger, appetite to eat goes up. And then on top of that as well, if we're then exercising and we're breaking protein down, we might actually lose muscle mass, which is then going to reduce our maintenance potentially over time and make us unhealthy and unwell. And then also, as we get older, recommendations for protein intake increase as we get older. The reason for this is because our bodies get worse at assimilating protein. So we retain muscle worse. Okay, And because of that, then that is a potential got a health consequence. So I'm generally a fan whether someone wants to lose weight or not of eating more protein in the diet. Because it provides enough ascent. And as we live longer and older, we need that protein for muscle retention and health. So, yeah, I would say that the RDAs, the recommended daily amounts, which we touched upon before, are going to actually, those are actually calculated in a slightly different way and a slightly more accurate. And I'm not going to talk about that today because of the, the way they do those studies. But basically, I would think that, that the amounts of protein that are recommended, likely over the next 10 to 15 years, as we start to appreciate the effect of aging, are likely to increase as a result of of that those findings as well, and particularly in aging populations. So once we start to get into like our forties, we start to find muscle retention becomes harder and harder and harder. Protein is muscle sparing as well. So I would always encourage like my parents are not interested in weight loss. I'm constantly badgering them to eat more protein. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Amy, I actually cover this topic in a voice in the tomorrow. Some myths uh, people think eggs. A bad bad cholesterol all this stuff i think it's been deep debunked a long time ago but... yeah there's yeah there's it's yeah yeah debunked a long time ago yeah the cholesterol and eggs is unlikely to have a significant effect on your blood cholesterol unless you already have like a super high cholesterol diet and that's probably the least of your worries if that's the case yeah. um, <laughs> and it's mostly yeah. like i think it was reading about it's like trans fats and like you know all this stuff that's more important to look into than yeah yeah there there is this is the thing again where you get into the depth of it like there are some bad fats that are out there there's very there's very few things that we label as good or bad but there's probably things that we we need to just be aware of you know but again that adds complexity to things and causes fear that we don't want to do so maybe we maybe we if we can get a list of those kind of more specific stuff maybe we just do like a closing live next week at some point to go over that kind of and the thing is uh, you know if we're eating moderation this covers everything yeah, yeah. So, yeah. you know, like that's the thing. Um, we kind of take care of it by just be be moderate. Um, let's see if there's a few more Mr. Paul and we'll call it a night. Guys, in terms of like the menstrual cycle and stuff and PCOS, that was co- this has been covered in depth with Lyle, who's done another one. So I'll link you to that one and then, he, then you can listen to that. Um, cause it does take a full session. To actually yeah. Like th- it's not as, it's not quite as simple. I mean, it, it, the outcome is simple in terms of, look, it does affect the behaviors at certain times and there's certain things that you can do to help, but like the complexities of understanding it and some of the charlatanism out there is something that I can't answer in 10 minutes. I'm afraid guys. And, um, but Lyle does a really good job at that, you know, so I'm sure, um, yeah, Scott will sort you out with that one. Yeah. Happy days. I uh, just had my protein bake cookie after dinner, fit my macros, but they are terrible for you trans fats. But are they terrible for you trans fats? Yeah, so, okay. 
if, if you were to have like several takeouts a week laced with trans fat, yeah, that might have a negative effect on your, a, positive, a negative effect on your HDL and a negative effect on your LDL. If you're just having the odd cookie now and again, the rest of your diet is balanced and high in fiber and good nutrients, no, it doesn't have an impact. This is the problem with taking nutrition specifically and then not putting it in the context of an overall diet. So yes, in the West, we typically have a diet that's full of like high, hyper-processed takeouts and foods, which were laced in trans fats, but even a lot of, food manufacturers now are reducing those because of those yeah. negative effects but if you're having it like a little bit every single day it's not going to be a problem no. it's just if, if that was all your diet consisted of or a good proportion of it then yes it's likely to be an issue so, yeah. yeah and it's the same with like sweeteners i can't remember the study or like the exact the specifics but i remember it was like they basically drown in terms of a sweetener, you'd have to be in a pool of this aspartame. I, I calculate. I calculated the numbers. You'd have to drink eighteen liters of aspartame, eighteen liters of diet coke in one sitting to get the same level that was used in the study. You know, and like, of course, you know, there's more deaths. There's. I can't remember the documentary. Uh, there's more deaths by vitamin D, vitamin C overdose than animal like steroid deaths in America. So when I saw one of those studies and it was like, it was vitamin D overdose. And you think vitamin D is such a good thing. And this is from the, the statistics they got. And I'll check um, you know, how accurate they are. But that stuck with me. It's like, you know, you can die of, there's a lethal dose to everything. But some of them are so way beyond what you could consume. Like, it's just yeah. not possible. Like, unless well, it's, 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 the, it's the classic kind of like daily, daily mail headline of like, this is associated with this. And it's like, right, in an animal study that was hyperdosed in animals that are prone to having tumors and getting cancer, because that's what they're interested in is mechanisms, not it's it's like, oh, what's the mechanism? It's not like, oh God, this is directly and then applicable to humans, you know? So it's and they think it's, it's witchcraft. They're like, how can how can sweetener be sweet? How can it do it? No way. I'm like, have you seen what we can do with science these days? If you think that's mind blowing, we've gone to the moon. We've 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 got something on Mars, guys. Like, make something <laughs> taste a bit sweet in the back of your throat. There's nothing. We can clone things. We can bring back the woolly mammoth if you want to. Do. So, you know, <laughs> that was a segue. Um, <laughs> I find it funny what that blows people's minds. Like, it it can't. It's nuts. <laughs> Um, I wonder about sweetener. And also, sweetener doesn't spike your insulin, guys. That's oh. another thing that's a myth. And even if it did, and even if it did, all that would happen is you'd go hypoglycemic. It wouldn't cause you to gain fat. If anyone uses the words insulin and fat gain in a sentence to you, just smile and nod and walk away because they don't know what they're talking about. It's called a carbohydrate insulin model of obesity. It's been widely debunked. It doesn't work. I was gutted the other day. I was listening to an audio book about human evolution that I was really enjoying. And it was some of these like ideas of mismatch diseases like diabetes and stuff, which didn't really exist historically. And then he started talking about, he talked about energy balance as being a driver, but then he started getting into like carbohydrate and insulin. And I was like, oh, you're an evolutionary biologist who's now stepped outside his knowledge area. And so mm. I actually wrote an audit on Audible. I was like, look, this guy's got a good grasp of knowledge and the overriding message is the same. It's to do with energy imbalance, but it goes down this little rabbit hole of glucose and carbohydrate metabolism. And it's like, it's just been debunked. Like it doesn't, it doesn't happen that way. No, it's interesting and it sounds cool and it's simple. I eat carbs, carbs raise insulin, insulin stores fat. Therefore carbs make me fat. Doesn't work that way, unfortunately. Um, and again, I've got a full lecture on that as well and debunking it. If anyone wants to sit through an hour of me talking some science that will make your head scratch. But again, yeah. that's the complexity of it. So people hide in those gaps of, of lack of understanding. But yeah, yeah. So if anyone says insulin and fat gain to you, just walk away because it's a gross oversimplification of how it works. Insulin plays a role, 
It sounds right. Okay. The thing is, these things sound right. This scientism, it sounds perfectly logical. And they walk you through and you go, obviously, insulin stores stuff, insulin stores fat, spike insulin store more stuff. So here's the thing. Insulin isn't a storage hormone. It's a blood glucose regulation hormone. As soon as you view it in those terms, you realize that when people say things like storage, it's emotive language. Yes, it helps you store glycogen, but it's actually a regulation of blood glucose hormone, not a storage hormone. That's what it's there to do, right? So it's it's a blood regulation hormone, not a, a blood glucose regulation hormone, not a fat storage hormone. And also, like, there's a bunch of doctors out there, like Dr. Jason Fung. I'm sure some of you have seen him, the obesity guy who talks about this model. There's Gary Taubes, or whatever his name is, who got destroyed in a debate with Alan Aragon once. Um, there's this group of these kind of people that stick together. And then there's a group of actual scientists on this side who like look at data objectively. And when you're fighting these, this side, demonizing one thing, it's easy to gain fans. When this side, like Dr. P and stuff says, look, science is complicated. It's nuanced. And people go, I don't care about that, mate. I want to, I think they, I think they're right. They've got an enemy and it's easy to follow. And I'm going to go that way. And the people on Paul's side and Alan Aragon and stuff, it is frustrating as hell for them because they've debunked it so many times. But in our head, we go, sugar, bad, fat loss. Sugar, bad, fat game. No, you can't tell me otherwise. Sugar is the devil. And it's just... And the, and the one thing that the, the people who tell that story have a tendency to do is they make it very emotive. They'll talk about personal experiences of changing yeah. people's lives with diabetes because what they're doing is they're appealing to emotion, not to science. Oh, well, it worked for me. And, you know, oh, this, this woman came to me and she had diabetes and then we cut her carbohydrates and then she, you know, she reversed the diabetes and it was because of this. And it's like, you can explain that without needing that model, but because they don't have the scientific evidence to support it, what they do is they always play on emotions because emotions sell, right? We speak passionately. We care about people. It's why we do what we do. We talk well, about hey, this idea of community. Look at this. This, you, you can't make a decision unless you have emotion. Mic drop, but right. the point the point is but like that feeds into the point of literally like people will listen to an emotional story on those subjects because it's all they've got and particularly if people are desperate to lose weight and they feel like every diet's failed them again it's it's hard to be like look, look actually this is hard work you need to work on your behaviors you need to learn about food you need to invest that time in educating yourself and surround yourself with the right people and not feel like a fool for believing all the bs that's out there and understand that, like, forgive yourself, but also, right, now it's time to go to work and learn stuff is much more daunting than, you know, getting this nice big hug of, it's not your fault, it's sugar, it's the food industry's fault, it's this, this. And don't get me wrong, all that stuff plays a role, food environment stuff, we don't deny that, but it's not for the mechanistic reasons that they say. But it's easy to blame that because then people go, I cut carbs, I lost weight. Well, you cut carbs, you cut calories, you lost weight. It doesn't change anything metabolically in terms of, calories in calories out it's just it hides in some model that doesn't really exist you know yeah yeah it's kind of like scooby-doo it's kind of like scooby-doo it's like you know remember the, the bad guy used to be unmasked and it was always like the fairground park yeah. owner and it's yeah. like it's the carbohydrate model of obesity and then you take it off you cut carbs and it's still the calories in calories out model underneath. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's always the same stuff with all of these things it's the same stuff guys um but yeah if, like any other questions pop them in we do next time but let us know in the chat if you found this useful. Um, what what really what really was useful for me when Paul mentioned it to me ages ago stuck with me. He said, Scott, think of carbs as energy. You know, if you change the name of carbs to mean energy in general, 
it makes more sense. And I was like, it does make sense. That makes more sense to me. Like I will eat energy, you know? And, and if I cut carbs, I get less energy. And then I yeah. lost weight because I get less energy, you know? Yeah. Like if you and just, just change that word. Sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of these like, tw- like little tweaks you can do. Um, no problem, Danielle. Happy days. Let's see if there's anything. Uh, Philippa saying thank you for the session. Nice one, Dr. P. Dr. P is 25% brain, by the way. 60% water, 25% brain. Um, just closer, got the cabs up and was scared of blood loving out. Yes, happy days. Sometimes you increase your carbs, you get more energy, you actually burn more calories over the day. I'll actually get in the deficit. That sounds nuts, but... Yeah, yeah. Increase increase your calories and lose weight because you're not in a depleted state anymore. You get loads of energy, you're buzzing around the place, and all of a sudden the magic happens. And that's another head screw. Um, Right, my man, I need to go because my food delivery's just arrived because my yeah, system nice. in place for the week is there to stop me eating terribly. Because I'm a busy little boy. I'm a busy little bee. Name the film. Busy what? little bee. Name the film. He's like, been a busy little bee. It's Gladiator. Yeah. Jacqueline Phoenix's character in that. Is it? Um, right. yeah, nice. Well, everyone else. Right, you wonderful humans. Love you all. Uh, look after yourselves. Keep learning. And it's been a pleasure to help in whatever ways we can. Hopefully see, see some of you guys in the membership. And if not, keep posting questions this week. I'll try and be a bit more active this week. Sorry about last week. I was off doing silly things. So, yeah, I'll try and answer as many questions as I can the rest of the week. Ta-da, ta-da.